Good morning. Good to be here with you. It's a couple things. Apologies to my New Testament class who just listened to me for three hours. And, uh, and also, <laughs> my hermeneutics students from last semester are wondering if we did the assignment on Colossians 3 because I was planning to do this. It's actually quite the opposite. This passage came up as I was marking your papers from last semester. And a third item, James double-checked with me before, uh, before the message, and I gave him the go-ahead, but I was off on my numbers, and I'm not intending to talk about Colossians 3.18, if anyone was concerned there. So, with those caveats, the, uh, I misunderstood which was verse 18. All right. So, question for you to begin. Have you ever believed or known something but not actually done anything about it? It seems like that's part of our human condition. I know I have a paper due three weeks' time and a few others after that. I should probably pick a topic, maybe read about it or something, but I can get to that later, right? I know that getting enough sleep and eating well can help my health and my ability to learn, but... I have that paper to work on. So late nights and junk food for me. I know that there's someone that I need to confront about a certain issue, but it's easier just not to deal with it. We can go on and on with examples like that. Our words or our thoughts, our actions do not always reflect what we know and believe. Too often there seems to be a disconnect between them and what we know we should do we don't actually do. I think this is the reality that Paul is talking about when he writes to the Colossians here in Colossians 3. Paul tells them that if they had died with Christ and been raised with him, their lives should look differently. The lived reality of their death and resurrection with Jesus should influence their words and actions. Now, as with most of Paul's letters, it's impossible to jump in to the middle and understand actually what's going on. If you look back over the previous paragraphs of what Paul has been talking about, depending on your translation, you will see that almost every paragraph begins with a word such as therefore, or for, or since. These words indicate the interrelatedness of Paul's argument here throughout Colossians. Paul isn't changing the subject when he talks here to the Colossians in chapter 3. It's the same subject as he's working through, and that's what I want to try to highlight. So we'll be jumping back to other parts of Colossians here. As with most of Paul's letters, he begins his letter with thankfulness for the church to whom he's writing, in this case, the church in Colossae. He gives thankfulness for their faith, that they've come to believe in Jesus. He tells them of his prayer for them, And he also speaks in the opening of Colossians about his thankfulness for God's reconciliation of humanity through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, giving us one of those rousing theological sections in in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. But there always comes a point in Paul's epistles when he gets to his main point, what he really is concerned about. And it sort of appears around the time of chapters 2, 3, or the middle of the epistle. And the topic becomes clearer. Paul has actually hinted at what he's going to get at earlier in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. 
For this reason, since that day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And he goes on. But here in in chapter 2, verse 6, he picks up on this theme, which he's hinted at at the beginning. 2.6. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk or live in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The Colossians have received Jesus, but that is just the beginning. Receiving him is just the beginning. In our Protestant traditions, sometimes we seem to talk as if that is all there is, but it's only the beginning. Knowing is only the start. We are called to live in Christ after just knowing about him. We've been planted in the soil of God, and our foundation has been set, but we need to build on that foundation. As seeds that have been planted in the soil of God, we need to grow. We live in an interesting time in history of Jesus following in the West. Our faith has at times, within the 20th century, particularly in the Western Christianity, been defined as what we don't do. We don't dance, we don't drink, we don't play cards, we don't go to movies, we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't, we don't, we don't. The evangelical church has slowly thrown off these, no, these don'ts, recognizing that they aren't central to our faith. We know better than those previous generations. These things are okay for Christians to do, but at the same time, we don't seem to have necessarily uh, discarded these don'ts with any sort of discernment. As Paul writes, elsewhere, all is permissible, but not is beneficial. Our focus has sometimes been on what we can and can't do again rather than on what Paul says here, living lives rooted and built in Christ. I've got three sons, as some of you know, uh, nine, seven, and we're very close to five. Acting more like three, though. We, I play a lot of games with them, and some of our, some of our favorites are Uno, Skippo, unfortunately Monopoly, Uh, and there's only four players, so my wife gets out of that one. Uh, And actually, she's more of a cutthroat Monopoly player, so that's probably fine with me, actually. Uh, A new game we picked up over Christmas, The Amazing Labyrinth. This is actually quite cool. I I enjoy it. Uh, But what I see oftentimes in my kids is that they are so concerned with the rules the rules of the game and who's breaking the rules and that's not fair and et cetera, et cetera. And I say, are we having fun, right? Are we having fun? Uh, and one of the other things which I don't always remember to do is we sort of start, I, sh- I try to and should do it more often, start at the beginning. Okay, is everyone prepared to lose? Because <laughs> only one of us is coming out of this alive, all right? So, Are you prepared to lose? So often we get caught up in these rules, these rules that we create. And we're not, we lose track of the larger picture 
that is Jesus, which maybe is not the best thing to associate with winning here, but on having fun and playing, but associating our life with Jesus. As Paul says, since you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, live in him, rooted and established in him. Our focus should be on whom we have received, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the hope of glory. We can and should know our rich Orthodox theology, but to quote quote Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? In 2.16 through 23, this later section, Paul talks about some of the ways that we shouldn't live. We can make up religious rules for ourselves that have little to anything to do with living for Jesus. If you died with Christ, Paul says to the world, why do you live according to the world's rules? Why do you create such rules as don't touch this, don't taste that? Now, Paul doesn't say that these rules are necessarily bad. Rather, he says, we shouldn't pay attention to these human rules because they don't help us to stop from living according to the world's desires. Those sorts of rules, don't touch this, don't taste that, don't keep us from what is actually the issue behind those, that those rules are attempting to keep us from. Paul says they have the appearance of wisdom. And I think we are prone to this sort of religiosity, living with this appearance of goodness on the outside, but no value ultimately in living in Jesus and walking with him. Making up such rules is actually living in the world and not according to Christ. I mean, I think this is a large portion of what Jesus wrestles with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of his day, is this religiosity, these made-up human rules. And one example, if you've been in some of my classes where I talk about Qumran, I always use this as an example because this one just, as a New Testament scholar, I just find this extremely intriguing. The, The Essenes, who most likely lived at the site of Qumran, on the shore of the Dead Sea and wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, Caveat, caveat, caveat. Um, the, uh, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the rule was, the Old Testament law, is that, that at least 2,000 paces, the washroom space needed to be from camp. Just in order to be as safe as possible, the Qumran people made their washroom site 3,000 paces. Right? The point of God's law here is about the holiness of where you dwell. The holiness of where God dwells. So we do the things that are unholy and unclean away from that space. Now you could make the rule 3,000 paces is the necessary way that this law must be kept. Oh, you walked 2,999 paces. For shame on you. But we lose track of what is really concerned about. And I think that is what Paul's talking about. Walking less than a mile on the Sabbath doesn't make the Sabbath unholy necessarily. Or make it holy just by walking a shorter distance. Living in a monastery and wearing coarse clothing doesn't automatically make us holy. And neither does, I think, staying from cards or various other things that have been the don'ts necessarily that make us holy. Paul's talking about here severity and asceticism don't stop us from indulging in the flesh. However, does this mean we can therefore take part in them? And if you stick with Paul's conversation here, he shifts things. Because if you saw that what I opened, 
in, uh, verse, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong, do you submit to its rules? Don't taste, don't touch. But in 3.1, after just having said, since you've died with Christ, therefore, if you've died with Christ, in 3.1 begins, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ. So if you've died with Christ, don't pay attention to these human rules that you make up. But if you've been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So since as believers we've died with Christ to the world, we don't need to and shouldn't give in to its made-up rules and traditions. But since we have also been raised with him positively, we need to set our hearts on the things above or more specifically to seek the things above and set our minds on the things above. Dying to the world and coming to life again in Christ should change our focus. Our perception or our perspective on what is valuable and necessary should become different. Seek the things above. The things of the world, the world's things, should not hold value for us. Please do notice that this is not necessarily a dichotomy that Paul is setting up between heaven and earth, but those things belonging to heaven and earth. We still live on earth, and God has created heaven and earth, and he declared it to be good. We're talking about the things that belong to God and the things that belong to the earth. Too often... I think we come to the conclusion that dying and being raised with Christ, throwing off traditions of do not touch, do not taste, don't see movies, don't dance, means that we are free to do whatever we want because we are, of course, free in Christ. The next two sections, though, what Paul talks about highlights that is very much not the case. Continuing with dying and rising language, Paul says, therefore, in in 3.5, Put to death the things that belong to the earth. The NIV says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The, the, the common English Bible here translates this as, put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth. The contrast here with the things that are needed to be put to death is earthly things in contrast to the heavenly things or the things above that you need to set your heart on and to seek in three one. It's a direct contrast. Seek the things above and put to, get, put to death the things of the earth. A direct reference there between those two. And then Paul gives a standard list of what we would expect to see in the New Testament. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which he calls idolatry. Paul tells the Colossians that God's wrath is coming on those who live in this way. He says, you used to live or walk in these things. You used to live in this way of life. Previously, he says, you need to walk and live in Christ. But here he's saying, your former life before you died and were raised to Christ was in these things. He says again in in, uh, 3.8, But also, you must rid yourself of all these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other. 
since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. He brings in another metaphor. He said to put to death, but here he also says to take off as if a garment, to take off this garment of the old self. Now, it's, it's hard not to hear that language and think that C.S. Lewis probably was not influenced in some way when he was writing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and about Eustace being in a dragon and having to take off that outer garment, that taking off the old self and becoming a new person that comes out of that, right? This is essentially what Paul is talking to us about. Now, you might be saying, well, isn't this list that Paul's talking about here just another list of don'ts? How does this relate to the don't touch, don't tell? I would say these are different. Because remember those ascetic, those severe practices, he said, are human rules that don't actually restrain our indulgence of sensuality. That sensual indulgence is here is what Paul is trying to address. But not just address, he's saying you must put it to death. Those things must be put to death. They must be taken off like an old garment and thrown away. The earthly things must be gotten rid of. You cannot live in those things anymore if you've died to Christ and been raised with Christ. It is our dying with him and being raised with him that demands this rejection or murder, to use a stronger word, of what was, what was our former life. Because as he says elsewhere in Colossians, our life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. Sometimes in our university academic setting, the theological realities of Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the mystery of godliness hidden for long ages, and uh, distracts us from what that theological truth means for how we should live. We turn over these ideas, we come up various ways of explaining how these various aspects function theologically, Christologically, Uh, pneumatologically we debate these ideas back and forth you're a heretic no you're a heretic right but if we have died with him and are raised with him those theological realities require that there is a change in our lives the earthly things or parts of us must be put to death the old self taken off and the things above sought after there's a book, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, it's actually, it's calling it a book is probably a bit strong. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a small little pamphlet, anybody? It's a few nods. Uh, so it's, the, uh, it's my generation crowd that's more aware of that. I should have brought a copy of it. I, I wasn't, I couldn't sure where it was. It's because it's so small, it was hard to find. But, uh, and also it's the context, I grew up with it because uh, where I grew up, the person who'd written it, Robert Munger, lived actually not far from, from a camp I used to attend. But in it, it's a story of someone who accepts Jesus and has Jesus come and live inside uh, that person's house. Uh, and so Jesus, he gives Jesus a room. You can stay in there, Jesus. The rest of the house is my space. Stay over there, all right? But as the relationship between this person and Jesus grows, Jesus begins to uh, hang out in the family space, the living space, the dining room. They'll eat meals together. But as the story continues, there's, the, there's this, this smell continues in the house. And, uh, and it, it's emanating from this closet. And, and the person who's come to Christ, who's allowed Jesus to live in his life, says, no, don't. 
you can't go in there, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I'm going to live here, all of this space is mine. That's the essence. All of this space is mine. We need to clean this out. And I think that's what Paul, that's the idea that Paul is talking about here. Getting rid of the old self is getting all of those things that connect us to our old earthly life. And we need to move and begin to think and seek the things above. I have a a push reel lawnmower uh, that I used to mow my lawn. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why people would have one. For me, I'm just not an engine person. And... uh, I don't like having to deal with engines. I like actually finishing my lawnmower, not smelling like an engine. There's also something nice about the quiet click-clack of the, of the blades rotating as they, they snip the grass like scissors across the lawn. Uh, but when I was, this summer, I realized that this lawnmower was, was dull. I was having to push too hard, and, and it was time to, to sharpen the blades of my lawnmower. As any self-respecting person does these days when you need to figure something out, I looked up videos on YouTube and, uh, and then ordered my self-sharpening kit from Amazon. So after, after a few days, I, I, had, I had my sharpening, sharpening tools and I figured out how to do this and, and uh, I started working on it. Now, I could have really gotten involved in in special sorts of sharpening mechanisms and gotten it as sharp and, and perfect as possible. I could have cleaned up my lawnmower, polished it, and just said, wow, that's a really nice lawnmower, and then, and then put it in my garage and left it there. But I think what Paul's talking about is, and what I'm concerned about is, we get so fixated sometimes on our, on our theology, on our Christology, that we don't then use it. We don't then live according to it. After this put-to-death language in verse 5, Paul gives us a positive language in verse 12. Put to death, he says, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. But in verse 12, he says, Therefore, it's God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Kind of sounds like some other list Paul writes. In another letter, doesn't it? Fruits of the Spirit. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over, above all, above all these things, put on love, which, is, which binds them together in perfect unity, or which is the bond of perfection, the bond of completion, the bond of maturity. Verse 15 says, And the peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. This sort of translation, we end up with let, oftentimes in English, which seems, and if you so choose, you can let peace rule in your hearts. No, the the force of the language here is, the peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom through hymns, psalms, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do. We can spend a lot of our time on our learning gaining knowledge, 
learning about our disciplines, learning about our, the ways our faith and Christianity are related to our disciplines, the way they interact with them. We can learn a lot about our faith, our Christianity, about Jesus, about God, about how he saved us. But we can also then not make any changes to our life. Not necessarily putting off the old self. We can even make up rules about how we can keep this theology, which allows us to still indulge in our sensuality of the old self. Knowing, having knowledge isn't enough. We need to live out our knowledge and belief. How we live is important. We may need to be more aware of our reasons for our choices and walk that line between false regulation and that life in Christ. Seek the things above, setting our hearts and minds on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us in the faith, those believers in Colossae, Paul, your apostle, who spoke to them and his words, your words, which come to us through the centuries. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to learn from these, to gain knowledge, but Lord, also to live out our faith, to put to death the old self, and to seek you above all things, to seek the things of heaven and not the earthly things, Lord, we pray. Encourage us, strengthen us as we live together in community. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. Go in peace.